0: You're listening to the pulpit ministry of North Life Baptist Church with Pastor Harley Snowd. At North Life Baptist Church, our mission is to encourage each person to take the steps of loving God, growing together, and serving others. If you would like more information about our church, please visit our website at www.northlife.church Now, stay tuned for today's message. We're looking at the book of James and Brother Larry wanted to know what the text was. I said, the book of James. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, but what specific? Well, the book of James. We're just going to go there. And I'm going to take you as best as I can through these five chapters and highlight <clears throat> what I believe are the insen- essential <laughs> ingredients or elements um, to the Christian life. Uh, there are, there are quite a few things in our life that are not really essential. We could get by without them if we had to. Um, our closets are probably full of more clothes than what we really need. And our cupboards probably more food than what we need. And um, But when we look at this letter the book of James. We call it a book, but it is really a letter. It's The letter gives it the, the feel of, of informality, but also familiarity and um, intimacy. Uh, it was the first book of the New Testament. Uh, it even preceded the Gospels of John, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it was there for a reason at That that point in time. The church had just been birthed there in the book of Acts and uh, persecution had uh, raised its ugly head and it says in the very first verse that the uh, twelve tribes were scattered. You see that in one one, Scattered abroad. And I don't know how you feel but when you're alone and scattered and away from others that are of like faith it's a little bit Uh, intimidating, frightening. So about five or six, maybe seven years later, this letter comes to the hand of the pastor in that church, and then it's copied and sent to that church and around, and it just all the saints that were scattered began to read this letter that James had penned because God told him to pen it. And he told it because they needed to hear what he had to say. He, he boils this down in, <clears throat> in just three simple essentials. Uh, the first one is found here in... Um, by the way, uh, one of the essentials, just kind of, uh, kind of humorously thinking, uh, uh, seeing Seth over here pilot-wise... Uh, years ago, I read the story about a young newspaper reporter who had been assigned to take pictures over the some burning fire. And uh, he goes to the airport and uh, grabs his satchel and jumps into a plane that's sitting there on the runway with a young pilot at the cockpit. <clears throat> and uh, and says, "Let's go!" And so they take off and. He says, take me over the fire, and he, and the pilot says, what for? And he said, because I want to uh, take pictures of the fire. And he said, uh, you're not the flight instructor? <laughs> he said, I've learned how to take off, but this was supposed to be the flight instructor that was supposed to meet me today was the one to help me to land. <clears throat> Sh- yeah, oops. So when I think of that, I think of the book of James. It's almost as though he's sending this letter to these people who, who had gotten into the family of God. And now because of the persecution and the difficulty and all the things that had transpired, the church was no longer a hub in Jerusalem but was scattered to the far reaches of the empire. And they get this letter. And it's as though the flight instructor has gotten back into the plane and he said, here, let me give you some instructions how to get from point A to point B. You don't have anything else other than all the Old Testament books and those were valuable. They had no other New Testament books like we carry in our hands. Here's the beginning. By the way, in your bulletin it does say this. It's an interesting part of this letter. There's an assumption about this letter, that the people who are reading it, receiving it, and reading it, are believers. Uh, There is no uh, reiteration of the crucifixion, although it's kind of implied in the Abraham and Isaac um, illustration. There is no mention of the resurrection, although again it's implied by the coming of the Lord. But as far as a specific reference to the gospel and And the crucifixion and the resurrection, it's not found in these five chapters. So there's an assumption that the people who are reading this letter are born-again believers. Uh, I would make that assumption here that most people in this room know Christ as your Savior. Now, it's possible, in fact, he's going to deal with that in just a little bit. Uh, It's possible that some people who profess to know Christ really don't. And there are ways to tell. But how do we take this instruction manual and apply it to our lives? First of all, look at the objective of the letter. Verse number uh, uh, 2, 3, and 4. My brethren. Again, the implication, these were saved people. Count it all joy when you fall into divers temptation. Don't worry about the word divers. We use the word diversity. That just means multiple. Uh, not every temptation is the same. Some temptations are enticements to do wrong. God's not involved in that. He allows it, but that's because we uh, need to learn something about our own selves. Diverse temptations. Some are trials of faith that are tests to uh, develop us and bring us along in the spiritual a walk that we have um, entered. Verse 3, trying, uh, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but here's the objective, the, the entire letter, this is the objective, but let, but let uh, patience have her perfect work that ye may be perfect, entire, and wanting nothing. nothing. And you say, well that lets me out because I'm not perfect. You don't understand the word perfect uh, is, is not used in the same sense that we use it uh, uh, hundreds of years after its translation. The word perfect has to do with entirety. It has to do with maturity. It has to do with development. If you are still at the same developmental stage that you were when you were first saved a year or two or 10 or 20 years uh, ago, a then you need to take to heart what what Paul, uh, what Paul, James is saying in this uh, uh, letter, because the, the intention of God is not to leave you just as you are when you came in the family, but to take you where he, he wants you to be. That's the intention. That's the objective of this book. That's the objective of these, and, and I, I put them in like three columns. These three columns that we're going to look at. Uh, they're, They're there to accomplish the task. To take you where you ought to be. And I don't know that anybody in this room would arrogantly say, I'm all that God wants me to be. You know that's not so. So this is applicable to me. It's applicable to you. You're not... Perfect in the sense of complete. You're not perfect in the sense of entire. You're not perfect in the sense of wanting nothing. And again, the word wanting doesn't have to do with wanting a new car or new clothes. It has to do with lacking. Lacking nothing. I'm lacking things. So that's the objective. How do we accomplish this objective? Well, verse 5 I think is a good starting point. We accomplish this Objective by the impartation of wisdom. Notice how he begins verse 5. This, uh, this is such a pleasant um, way to begin this verse. Just a little word. If any man lack wisdom. You know, he knows everybody lacks wisdom. But he's being gracious to us. Now, by the way, when we get to chapter 2 and 3... He's not going to be as gracious. He's going to be pretty bare-knuckled. But he begins the letter by saying, you know what? If you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. What is wisdom? It's the ability to see things like God does. You, You don't come into the family of God and see everything clearly. It's all fuzzy uh, we see through a glass darkly, um, and and then, as the Word of God begins to be to clarify things to us, as His wisdom begins to give us perception on things, then we begin to develop the characteristics that God intended us to have. If any man lack wisdom, truth is, all of us lack wisdom. By the way, just so you understand, wisdom is not the same as intellectual acquisition. You can go to the university, get all the degrees you want, and what you'll conclude is the same thing that Solomon did in the book of Ecclesiastes, where where he said, I have sought All the knowledge and all the wisdom under the sun and all it produced was grief. Uh, Isn't that a sad thought? Here's the man who had as a young king, here's the man who as a young king had got on his knees before the Lord, 20 some-ish, and said to the Lord, God, I can't rule this this kingdom I need wisdom and understanding. And God said, okay, I'll give it to you. Since you didn't ask for wealth and power, I'll give you it. But in his old age, came to the conclusion that somewhere along the line, he lost track of sight of what he had asked for as a young man. And he began to pursue those intellectual um, titles and tags that made people think he was somebody. Note what that kind of wisdom accomplishes. Chapter 3, look in verse uh, uh, 14 and, and 15 and 16. Uh, doesn't it amaze you how many PhDs uh, I, I was thinking about this the other day. My mom with her third grade education had more Wisdom in her little finger than the PhDs that run our world and our academic institutions. Uh, She had more common sense. She had more perspective on God than all the intellectuals that you can put in a in this room. Here's what. Here's how we know that there's the different kinds of wisdom. That kind of wisdom is not God's wisdom. Here's how we know, verse 14, but uh, chapter 3. But if you have bitter envying and strife in your heart, what is a lot of this stuff built on? Bitter, envying, strife. Glory not, lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above. If it doesn't come from above, then where does it come from? <laughs> Below, that's right. The antonym. But is earthly, sensual, devilish, and where envying and strife is, there's confusion in every evil work you got two types of wisdom. It's the kind of wisdom that you get in a book, you get in an academic institution, and then there's the kind of wisdom that you get from God. You know what that wisdom from um, below looks like? Go back to chapter 1, verse 8. Here's one thing it looks like. Double-minded. Unstable in all his ways. It just fluctuates. It's never the same. You can't ever count on it. It, It's not going to be uh, 10 years from now. The wisdom that this world has is going to be completely different than it was in our time. It just keeps fluctuating. That's not God's wisdom. Look in verse um, 14. What does that kind of wisdom look like? Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. It's it's selfish. It's only about gratification of myself. What what makes me feel good? That's not God's wisdom. What is God's wisdom? Well, verse 5 said, first of all, you need to ask for it because he giveth to all men liberally and abradeth not. It's a gift. God's wisdom, it can't be earned. You can't buy it. Proverbs says, buy the truth and sell it not. It doesn't say that you can buy wisdom. You can buy information, but how you respond to truth. Even when Jesus said the truth shall make you free, he didn't mean that you're free just by understanding it, that knowing it, you've got to respond to it. That's the same with uh, the proverb that says buy the truth. Yeah, go spend as much money and time and effort as you can to get truth. But then you've got to respond. Wisdom says I'm going to respond to the truth that I now understand. Mentally comprehend. Now I'm going to implement it. That's wisdom seeing things through God's eyes. Truth. Look on down in verse 17 in chapter 1. It's a gift. Wisdom he giveth to all men liberally. Verse 17, and he, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. If if the other wisdom that's described so graphically comes from below, this comes from above. But it's a gift. It's something that uh, I don't deserve and that I, I can't earn. It's so expensive that I couldn't pay for it. Many of the Proverbs describe wisdom as being more valuable than gold or uh, precious gems. And and wisdom is so valuable, you can't afford it. But you can ask him for it. And he gives it liberally, he said in verse 5. He's not stingy. God's gracious, he's good, and he's giving But look in verse 21 of chapter 1. How is it imparted, this gift? Verse 21, lay lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and here it is. Receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. How is wisdom received its it's received, A, with meekness, the recognition that I need to be controlled by somebody else. I, I don't ha- I'm not smart enough to figure this out. I'm not cunning enough. I'm not crafty enough. I'm not capable enough. I'm not talented enough. I'm not rich enough. But I find somebody who is, and so with meekness, I come to him in, in desperation say, I'm willing to let you pull the strings of my life. That's the that. That's the understanding of meekness. I have the free will to do whatever I want. God made me that way. But I want to know what you want to know. I want to know what you want me to do. That's meekness. By the engrafted word, this book that he's already penned, that we need to, all we need to know about him is found therein. And and it's not just intellectually comprehended, but it's engrafted. It's like like a a tree that has a little of the bark cut and then a branch is put in and then we wrap it with something and it, it becomes part and parcel with us. This book is not just a coffee table book it's, it, it's God's wisdom if all you get in life I was asking some of the seniors today about their next plans if all you get in life is an education If all you achieve in life is a vocation, and you get to the end of it, and somebody, and you get to retire with accolades and achievements and all the money in the world, if all you get in life are those things, you will have been as much of a failure as Solomon the 60-year-old Solomon who penned the book of Ecclesiastes and said, all these things that I did under the sun were vanity. God help us not to get to that age and stage of our life and all we can write is what Solomon wrote. God help us not to, uh, not to, uh, not to devote ourselves to things that are like chaff that the wind blows away. God give us wisdom. Look at the second one. Chapter 2. Now he's going to plow a little closer to the corn. For all old timers. we going to get a little bit closer to the, our feelings. He says this down in chapter 2. 14. What would the prophet, my brethren, though a man say? Underscore that word. He have faith and have not works. Can faith save it? Hmm. We avoid that a little bit because we don't want to be uh, uh, legalizers, and we don't want to be like those who demand circumcision or baptism or uh, this type of clothing or that type of clothing or this. Uh, forbid that. Uh, We don't want to be legalizers, but this is a legitimate question you have to face. Look at here he illustrates what he's trying to get across to these dear brothers scattered all around in these churches now. He knew him, some of them personally. And he said, if a, if a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you said to him, depart in peace, be you warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give, him, uh, give them not those things which are needful to the body. What well, does the prophet? You can say anything you want to. And if there's nothing demonstrative... To back up what you say, nobody's going to believe it. Go on down. 18 says, Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show. That's the second uh, key word. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Understand something. Religious people think that faith plus works produces salvation. We don't think that. We believe as Bible believers, if you're a Bible believer, that faith plus works proves or demonstrates salvation. It doesn't produce it. No amount of works. And that's, by the way, why every religious person that has that formula, faith plus works produces salvation, the whole life they spend, I hope I'm going to heaven. I hope I'm going to heaven. They never know because they never know if they've done enough works. That's just the opposite of the Bible believer. The Bible believer says, faith has produced my ticket to heaven. But works has demonstrated that there's been a reality inside of this heart of mine, a change in my my heart. Notice the religious uh, person that uh, depends on faith and works to produce salvation. They always ignore uh, James 2.10 if He said, whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he's guilty of it all. Listen, I'm guilty. I haven't murdered anybody, but I've done some other things that qualifies me as a murderer. Guilty of it all. So if I'm depending on my works, even that much for salvation, uh, I'm in big trouble. And that's not what James is communicating in this dear in this letter to these dear folks he's saying that your works coupled with your faith are proof are demonstrations that you are what you say you are and and the reality is if you say you're something and you and the life doesn't back it up. Nobody's going to believe it. He uses Abraham for an example of offering his son. He was justified. Abraham, our father, was justified by works when he offered Isaac. Now, that doesn't mean he was saved at this point in time. In fact, he was, he was a child of God long before long before this ever happened. But it does indicate that he was it demonstrated that there was a reality in the faith that had transformed his life. Do me a favor, hold your hand here, go back to, I just found this a week or so ago, and it's something that's fresh on my mind still. Look in Luke chapter 7. You see, the problem oftentimes is we we define words the same in every text, but they're not the same in every text. The word justification, we've always defined it just as if I'd never sinned. Look at the problem that that poses. If you you define it the same way in every text, then the problem comes here in chapter 7 when you read verse 29. All the people that heard him, Jesus, and the publicans, all of them that heard Jesus justified God. Uh, God doesn't need to be justified. He's already just. So the definition can't be just as if I'd never sinned in this text. It means that they observed and they heard what Jesus said and they concluded that what Jesus said was right and that God was right. That's all the word justification means in this text. And it's all that it means in James chapter 2. Abraham was not justified before God by his works. He was justified by God by faith. Romans 4 says that. Romans 5 says that. By faith alone. But he was justified. That is, we can conclude by observing and hearing about the event. He demonstrated that his faith was real. That's what the implication is here. Uh, Rahab's the same example. Uh, She, uh, it says that likewise was not Rahab, verse 25, uh, the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and sent them out uh, 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 another way. Uh, Those things did not make her right before God. That happened the moment she said that the God of Israel is the God of my life. But she demonstrated that justification by hiding the spies, preserving their lives. What's the point of it? No one will ever be justified before God except by faith. But no one will ever be justified before others except by faith plus works. You can say you have all the faith in all the world and if people don't see it. Ah, you're no different than my neighbor. You're no different than the guy at the bar. You're no different than and the list goes on. That's pretty heavy evaluation when I look into my heart and I say, do the works, do the works of my life reflect the reality of my heart. Hmm. And so it is that James says, don't be like the hearer that hears and then doesn't do it. He looks in the mirror, sees himself, and then goes out and doesn't bother washing his face in the remainder of the text. There's a third element. And I... I hesitate to say this, but it, it it goes from pleasant to heavy to heavier. <laughs> we'll get to the bottom line. It's, it, James is not uh, uh, morbid. He's not, uh, uh, you know, trying to present a downer. James is 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 a um, a good old-fashioned, down-to-earth, realistic Bible preacher. And he records this information for people to hear. Look in chapter 3. How do we accomplish the objective that was presented in verses 2, 3, and 4 in the first chapter? uh, That we be entire, uh, that we be perfect, entire, wanting nothing. Well, first of all, we need a good dose of wisdom. We need to see God's way. Number two, we need to... We need to scrutinize the things we do in our lives. Uh, we need to quit saying, well, you know what? Uh, you know, I have the freedom to do it. I have the liberty to do it. You may have the freedom to do it, but, mm-hmm. but it also is going to impact what people believe about you. If you act and say and do and all those things just like them, why would they think they need to become a Christian? But the third one is probably the hardest one, and that's why the language is the most brutal. Remember I said at the beginning, uh, it goes from gracious to bare knuckle. <laughs> in chapter 3, this is bare knuckle. He's going to give it to you straightforward uh, concerning what he introduced just briefly in chapter 1 about being slow to speak and... Um, uh, swift to hear and, and Wednesday in, in a group one of the ladies said you need to that's why God gave you two ears and one tongue so you'll, you'll talk less and listen more but, but he's going to be more specific here in chapter 3 he's going to get right down to the nitty gritty when it comes to the tongue number one what's the problem with the tongue look in verse 2 of chapter 3 It has the tendency, propensity, to be, uh, to offend. You see that in verse uh, 2? For in many things we offend all. All of us do. If any man offend not in word, the same is perfect. There it is. That's the first, uh, chapter 1, verse 2, and 3 and 4. That's the objective, isn't it? Is to to perfect what comes out of this mouth. uh, To mature it. By the way, we don't think anything of a little kid, uh, one, two, three years old, seeing somebody that is a little less attractive. Man, that woman is ugly. (laughs) We don't think anything of that. But some 50, 60 year old person says that, we think, man, what is the matter with you? Don't you know how to control your tongue? You see, the little kid is still a kid. But after I've been saved a year or two or ten or twenty, I ought not to still be in that kid mode. And the kid mode is offensive. Uh, the one who's found some level of maturity learns how to—I oh, don't know what the word is—sift the words that comes out that come out of their mouth. You don't have to give everybody a piece of your mind. You may not have much left when you get done. (laughs) Honest. Really, people don't need to know everything you think. Um, And and there's nothing wrong with sharing scriptures that offend. The, The scripture does offend. Some of this is difficult for me but I don't have the luxury to be offensive. I remember when I was a young pastor, I heard some preacher in a big church say, and he got a lot of laughs. He said, oh, he said lady asked me if I smoking cigarettes, will send you to hell. He said, no. He said, no, but it'll make you smell like you've been there. And I thought that was funny. <laughs> so I went, went and said it in church, and some dear lady that was struggling, I'm telling you, Good woman, A good woman. She's struggling. I didn't see her then for weeks or months, and I finally got the courage to go and talk to her, and that had, that had hurt her badly. And I thought to myself, how cruel! Somebody who's struggling with something, uh, with and, and just to be offensive, just because it it made people laugh. It, I don't want to be offensive. I, I don't, I, it doesn't bother me that scriptures offend people. That doesn't bother me. But it does bother me when I'm offensive. So the tongue is this device that oftentimes is offensive. Look in verse 5. What else does it have a tendency to do? It has a tendency to be boastful. See it in verse 5. Even so the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Behold, how great, great a matter, a little fire kindleth. You want to know how how this fire goes? Verse 6 the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members that in that it defileth the whole body and setteth on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. Didn't I tell you at the beginning of this chapter that he's not going to be very gracious? The tongue sets fires. That's why you need to guard it more carefully than you do just about anything. Guard your thoughts. Maybe that'll help the things come out of your tongue to be better. Look in chapter 4 and verse 3. When it comes to... Oh, by the way, don't miss verse 7. Go back to verse 7. Of chapter uh, 8, I'm sorry, of chapter 8. 7 and 8, actually. Of every kind of beast, bird, and, ser- and of serpents and things of the sea is tamed and have been tamed and of mankind I got a dog. She thinks she's tamed. She's not. But the, dog, but, the, but the tongue can no man tame. Isn't that something? So what hope is there? Uh, be, not fill, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul told the Ephesians. I need, to, I need the Holy Spirit to control me. And that includes my tongue, this untamable tongue. Chapter 4 again, I took you to that a moment ago. 4 3. What about this tongue? You ask, that's the tongue. You receive not because you ask amiss that you consume it upon your own lusts. The tongue is inherently. Asking for things that are selfish. Thinking of myself. There are other people. You may not realize this, but there are 7 billion other people on the globe. Honest. And God cares as much about them as he does you. So when you ask for something and you don't get it, Maybe it's because God knows something more than you do, and maybe somebody has a bigger need than you do. Selfish. The controlled tongue is verse, chapter 4, verse 6. One that is controlled by humility. Uh, God, uh, he giveth more grace, verse 6 says. Uh, wherefore, he said, God resisteth the proud... But he giveth grace to the humble. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking less of yourself. You understand the distinction? One is thinking, I'm just nobody. You know, some of the proudest people in all the world are people who think they're nobody. They want you to know it. I'm proud of my humility. You know? I am who God made me. All the works and everything it is. And and He's been changing me and and all my limitations and all my capabilities. He is who I. um, And and it's not proud, it's not humility to say I'm just nobody. God made you. Um, He didn't make you like you are. You made you like you are, but he'll be willing to make you like. You ought to be if you'll say just as I am. Again, Charlotte Elliott had to come to that point that she said that and then she penned those words. Look in verse 7. Submit yourself therefore to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Man. The tongue. Do you remember when Peter said to Jesus in Matthew 18, he said, oh, no, 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 no. You're not going to die. We'll take care of you. And Jesus said, (laughs) I'm telling you, I sure want, I'd hate to be that in that room and hear Jesus say to me, get thee behind me, Satan. You know, uh, um, sometimes things come out of here that really are. I hate to say inspired of Satan, but certainly are um, not of God. And uh, Submit yourself to God, and he'll flee from you. The devil will flee from you. Verse 10, humble yourselves in the sight of, of the Lord, and, and he'll lift you up. The controlled tongue is one that is humble. Look in chapter 5. And I told you, Brother Larry, we'd get through all five chapters. Look in verse 16. The controlled tongue is a confessing tongue. I I don't like confession. You know, they say confession is good for the soul. Um, I don't enjoy it, but it's good for me. To eat crow. The only thing I find about Eating humble pie that I like is that there are no calories. (laughs) Confession. The confessing tongue, you see it in verse 16. Confess your faults one to another. It doesn't say confess your sins one to another. Uh, Listen, I don't want you to know all the, uh, the things I've done, but I'll gladly at some point acknowledge, you know what, anger's an issue with me. Uh, this is an issue with me. This is a faulted area with me. And I'd gladly have you pray for me because, boy, I need it. Confess your faults. If you hang on to them by yourself, you're, you're no match for the devil. And you're no match for your, your own flesh. You, you can't overcome without having others that you confess your faults with. And then look at verse uh, 16 again. Uh, The tongue needs to be engaged in confessing faults and then in effectual, fervent prayer. Effectual. Things that affect change. We're not just talking about now I lay me down to sleep kind of prayers. These These are prayers that say God help us. Uh, God, we don't understand this. Uh, and, and chapter 1 said he doesn't scold us see, if we act, l- lack wisdom and we ask. He says he gives liberally, but it says he doesn't abrade us. He doesn't beat us over the head and say, Yoda, you should have known that. What's the matter with you? I told you that 20 years ago. Uh, he doesn't. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And he, and he even used Elijah, verse 17, as an example. Nobody could be more um, human than Elijah. Here's the guy who called down fire from heaven and then ran from Jezebel sat under the juniper tree and said, God, I don't understand. You know, I'm the only guy out here doing this thing. And, and God said, no, nah, you're not the only one. God, I just want to die. <laughs> you know how gracious God was to Elijah? He said, you're not going to die right now. I got some other things I got you to do. We're going to turn the mantle over to another man. But right now, it's not time for you to die. So if I can boil the whole five chapters down in these three columns, it's wisdom. You need that. You're not smart enough without it. Works. Don't don't diminish the value of your works in demonstrating or justifying your faith before people. But lastly, words. Words you say matter. They're going to impact people's lives. They're going to impact your life. They may even impact the longevity of your life. Take this letter that James has composed for those people 2,000 years ago that God has designed for people for every generation thereafter. Take this letter. Make it your letter as though you just got it in the mail. And make it part of your essentials of life. Let's pray together.